So this morning I have the great task of trying to connect uh, our current passage in James chapter 2 with our Christmas celebration. Um, how are we going to connect these tests of authentic faith with Christmas? Is it possible to have such a connection? Thankfully, James includes two names in our passage today that are intimately connected to Christmas. So if you would join me by turning to James chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 14 through 26, and I want you to look for these two names that, that uh, we can connect to our Christmas celebration this morning. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was, along, was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time together in the word. Father, I thank you that we now can gather here around this word and uh, be assured of your presence with us um, in your word through the spirit. I ask that you would take our hearts and minds and, and remove any distraction from them, that you would keep our, our focus on your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would enliven our hearts and enlighten the word so that we will leave here uh, encouraged and strengthened in our faith. Now bless us as we come here at this time in your name. Amen. So we have here, as I just read for you, two names. Abraham and Rahab that are listed in this passage that help us connect Christmas to this passage. Uh, let, me, uh, let me read part of Matthew chapter 1, which uh, will help you see the connection and records the beginning of the Christmas story. All right, so if you'll follow along, I'm going to read portions of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. And this, of course, is the genealogy of Christ Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, his brothers. Solomon, this is after skipping a couple verses and a few generations, Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by, Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. So Rahab was the great-grandmother of King David. 
And then we skip a few more generations, a few more verses, and we read this in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So there we have the connection. Now let me try to explain to you why it's important. Abraham and Rahab were in the line of Christ, okay? They were ancestors of Jesus Christ. Abraham, who was a rich idolater, and Rahab, who was a poor prostitute, are both critical to the birth of Jesus our Savior. The interesting thing that you need to keep in mind as we go through this sermon this morning is that Jesus got to choose his ancestors. All right, Jesus got to put together his own, his own tree, his own family tree, unlike you and I. So he intentionally chose Abraham and Rahab to be in his family tree. So the question is, why did James include these two particular Old Testament characters as examples of faith and why did Jesus choose them to be in his family tree? And those two answers are connected. And I hope to um, get you there this morning. But first, let's back up a little bit and pick up James's train of thought uh, here in this epistle of James. Uh, of course, this book is a collection of tests of authentic faith. If you've been here, uh, you've known that we've been covering this book since September and we've found out that it's a collection of tests of authentic faith. If you want to know if you truly know God, if you want to know if you truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ, James is the book to study. James is the book to read. And so we have covered four tests so far of authentic faith, and now we find ourselves here in chapter 2 in the fifth test of authentic faith. Last week, if you remember, I addressed the first half of this fifth test, and I explained to you uh, what James was calling dead faith. Uh, James said that dead faith is marked by two things. One, big talk, and two, no game. So dead faith, if your faith is dead, if it's not real, if it's not genuine, you may be able to talk the talk, but your game will never follow suit. This is the first marker of this uh, fifth test, dead faith. Now, uh, these are people who, those with dead faith, are people who are quick to claim to know God. They presume their Christianity. But when the rubber meets the road, there's very little game. There's very little to show for their claims. Uh, no follow-through, all talk, no game. But now we're coming to verse 20, and we're going to study verses 20 through 26 this morning, where James is going to let us know or define for us living faith. Living faith. Now, James has two examples of living faith, Abraham and Rahab. And you'll notice that the first marker of living faith is the same as the first marker of dead faith, big talk. So both those with dead faith and living faith have the same first marker. They both claim to know Christ. They both talk of knowing God. Here, let's look at this. Verses 14 through 19, we see in verse 14 particularly, someone claiming to know God. If someone says he has faith, James says in verse 14, he's claiming to know God. And then here we see that Rahab and Abraham also claimed faith. Let's, let's look at Rahab, for example. Let's go back to the Old Testament story 
of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Remember that Rahab was a resident of Jericho and the people of Israel were surrounding Jericho and were about to conquer it and they sent in two spies and Rahab hosted these spies. Rahab, remember, was a, a prostitute. In verses 9 through 11, Joshua 2, we're going to read of Rahab's confession of faith or her claim to faith. Rahab said to these men, the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land and the fear, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For you have heard, for we have heard, rather, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you and when you came out of Egypt, and that you did what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Now listen to her confession. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. All right, so Rahab just claimed, just professed to believe in the God of Israel. Same God, by the way, that you and I claim to believe in. This is a record of Rahab's big talk. Now, it's the same claim as the person made back in verse 14. Someone who says they have faith. Rahab here promised on top of her claim, she promised good deeds in protecting the spies. Now, let's look at Abraham's claim. We'll jump over to Genesis 15, verse 6, which is the famous verse that records Abraham's claim to faith. And it's real simple. It says this, And Abraham believed the Lord... And he counted it to him as righteousness. Right there we, we learn Abraham said he believed in God. He believed the Lord. So both Abraham and Rahab claimed to believe. This is why I think James uses them as examples of living faith. The second marker. The first marker of living faith is the claim, just like the first marker of dead faith. But now the second marker of living faith, as opposed to the second marker of dead faith, the second marker of living faith is big game instead of no game. Big talk, big game. How did Rahab back up her big talk? What was her game? Well, she hid the spies. She hid the men of Israel. If you read her story in Joshua chapter 2, you discover she just didn't claimed to believe that this God of Israel was mighty, God of heaven and God of earth, and then, you know, see you later. No, she actually followed through on her claim to believe in this God, and she hid these two spies that were from his people, the people of Israel. She went all in because of her beliefs. She risked her life, she risked the lives of her family, because she actually believed what she claimed. She actually committed treason in Jericho, the punishment for which was death. But she did so because she actually believed in God. Why did James include her? Besides the obvious that I've just mentioned, her works backed up her claim. But why didn't he, like for example, James, why didn't he just choose Elijah as a demonstration of faith or Samson? Uh, why not Sarah, Abraham's wife, for example? She would have been a wonderful choice, I think. She was a woman of faith. She's listed in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith. Sarah would have been a wonderful choice. But James chooses Rahab. Why? I think we can have some pretty good ideas. And here's where I think we can start connecting 
these two characters, Abraham and Rahab, to Christmas. So follow closely. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If you go back and, and read that carefully, just look at the names listed in Matthew chapter 1 that were ancestors to Jesus Christ, you'll discover something very interesting. There is a wide range of types or kinds of people. All right, you have, you have a very diverse group in the ancestral line of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is a savior of all people. And this, and this list of ancestors, God designed intentionally to cover a broad spectrum of people types. Jesus loves all kinds of people. He was born for every kind of potential person. Rich, poor, elite, the outcast, the intelligent, the not so much, the religious, the irreligious, every ethnic group possible are in this list. Have you read it? It's got murderers in there. It's got no notorious rapists in there. It has got incestuous people in there. In this list of the ancestors of Christ, you see, Jesus' eternal home will be populated with every imaginable variety, which will have been saved out of every imaginable sinful circumstance. We'll have a representative there in the line of Christ. All of us are somewhere in between Abraham and Rahab. That's why these two were chosen. Abraham was a social elite. He was from a huge modern city in Mesopotamia named Ur. He was wealthy, intelligent, well-respected, etc. Everything goes along with that. Rahab, on the other hand, a Gentile, a prostitute. She was poor. She was a social outcast. She was living in some small remote area in the Middle East. In terms of the best possible candidate to be an ancestor of Jesus, Rahab was a poor choice. Abraham made sense. Rahab, not so much. But both were in the line of the Messiah. What was Abraham's game? We just heard of Rahab's game. What was Abraham's game like? Well, consider the thing that, that uh, James refers to. The sacrifice of his son. Consider the obedience and attitude required to be faithful, to trust God in that circumstance that we read of in Genesis 22. God tells Abraham to take his only son and sacrifice him as a burnt offering to God. Can you imagine such a thing? A child you have waited for for nearly half a century. And then God turns around right when Isaac is coming of age and tells you to take his life. <laughs> this, this, this is hard to comprehend for many reasons. But think about what was at stake. Isaac was the promised son born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. They just couldn't turn around and redo this, right? Isaac was the only heir. He was Abraham and Sarah's long-awaited son. This was a monumental act of faith, which James records. But listen, from the time God called Abraham out of his hometown in Ur, which happened in Genesis 12, uh, from that very moment, Abraham began to exhibit faith all the way through this story 
which was 30 years later in Genesis 22. Abraham was showing faith from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22. All throughout his life. And, and James picks out this one. Why not that one? Why not the first one? Did it require faith of Abraham to leave Ur? I'll tell you what. He was established. He was, that, that was his, his family was there. His, his means of income was there. Everything was there for Abraham. God says, follow me into this place I, I can't tell you about right now, but just follow me. How would that have gone, men, with your wives? Hey, honey, I got this great new idea. Let's, let's run out into the desert 400 miles and see what happens. He's either crazy or very faithful. So we had these demonstrations of faith, of, of works in the life of Abraham from the beginning all the way up through the sacrifice of Isaac. Why did James choose Isaac? But we see here that he did choose that. And we can see from Abraham's life and Rahab's life, their work backed up their claim. Look at verse 20. There's some humor here that you may not recognize in the English. But humorously, James here uses the word foolish man. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? <clears throat> now, why is that funny? Well, because in the, in the literal language, literally it, it means this. Uh, listen, stupid blockhead. <laughs> That's what it literally means. James, James here is saying, uh, do you want me to show you, you blockhead? Why this is so obvious? And then he goes, then he goes to, uh, look at verse uh, 22. It's, it's like he's walking a toddler up to a picture and explaining, this is a picture of a dog, honey. Do you see that? And here's a cat. Here's a dog. This is how he's treating us here in verse 22. He goes, you see? And there's an emphasis there with those two words in English. You see that faith was active along with his works. Can't you recognize the simplicity of this? Faith was completed by his works. And then verse 24, he continues this, this tone. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. This is elementary, James is saying to us. This isn't complicated. Abraham and Rahab completed their faith by their works, like everybody else who has true and genuine faith. Abraham and Rahab, by the way, never did good deeds in order to gain God's approval, which is uh, a conflict for many people today. These two, Abraham and Rahab, simply responded to their circumstances in ways that evidenced a new heart. Their works demonstrated that God had actually regenerated their souls. So, so as we consider this test for ourselves today in this room... We don't need to worry and fret over whether or not we are demonstrating enough good works to prove our faith to be authentic. We simply must respond to our circumstances the way our hearts direct us to respond. And if they're regenerated hearts, guess what the response will be? Faithful obedience. This is really, really important to understand. When you encounter an opportunity to serve, does your heart draw you towards that service? 
If so, rejoice that God has, in fact, given you an opportunity to confirm your faith and at the same time be a blessing to those around you. Now, I want to take this a little further. I want you to think about Jesus' teaching uh, regarding uh, fruit-bearing trees. You remember that teaching? He said if a, a, good fruit, a good tree will bear good fruit. You remember that? We can see from this teaching in Jesus' uh, life that fruit-bearing is a natural process for trees. It is natural for an apple tree to bear apples. It's unnatural if they don't bear apples. Bearing fruit isn't a function that's added to a tree later on some other date down the road. No, it's an integral part of its design and purpose. In fact, if you were to dissect a apple seed, you would discover genetic information that would produce more apple-bearing trees. It's part of the DNA of an apple tree. When a person is born again by faith and, and they come to a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, guess what happens? God has given them a new nature. He has regenerated their heart, and now our new DNA, the DNA of a Christian, is to simply bear fruit, to do good works. It is natural to us now. This is why Abraham and Rahab had good works. Their good works were part of their new DNA. And it was part of them the moment they were granted new spiritual life. You remember the thief on the cross? Did he demonstrate a new heart? He did, didn't he? in his short lifespan between the time he was regenerated and the time he died was just a few hours. And yet in that few hour time span, guess what we see? Good works. Yeah. He went from ridiculing Christ to defending Christ. Within a couple minutes, the, the DNA that God had placed within his soul that converted his heart began to bear fruit immediately. He wasn't up there thinking, okay, now I've got this weird feeling. Now, what am I going to do to prove to God? No. It was a natural response. It's the same thing that happened to Abraham and Rahab. The same thing happens to you and me if we're saved. God knew that Abraham and Rahab's faith was genuine before they demonstrated it. How do, you, how do I know that God knew? Because God is the one who gave them the new heart. Remember, remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace you've been saved through faith. Where does that come from? Verse says it's a gift of God. The very same verse. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. Abraham and, and uh, Rahab's new desire to do good works came from the fact that God had changed their heart. God knew it already. See, works are simply an outward demonstration of an inward reality. Abraham and Rahab's demonstration simply confirmed the authenticity of their faith to themselves and to anybody that was watching. So when we see Abraham offering Isaac up, the, the point of that that James is making is now the world can tell that his faith is real. This wasn't information for God. This confirmed to Abraham his faith. This confirmed to Abraham's family his faith. Confirmed, confirmed Abraham's faith to all his neighbors. Now the world knows that Abraham's faith is real. Look what he did with his son. 
So what we're saying here is that we should be living a life that demands an explanation. Should be showing something to be evident of our new heart. But why did James choose the story of Isaac's sacrifice to return to that concept versus what happened in Ur 30 years prior? Why, why did he choose Genesis 22 instead of Genesis 12? Both were acts of faith. Both confirmed the reality, authenticity of his relationship with God. Why not choose the example of him leaving Ur? Well, we're going to keep with the athletic metaphor here. We've got big talk, big game. How about this? The big reward. What is the goal of every sports team, every competitive athlete? Let me tell you this. Uh, for you, those of you who have young children in sports, the goal is not participation. <laughs> the goal is to win. Okay? The goal is to win. Ask any athlete, any team that cares, it's actually the goal is to win. And so we see this here. Uh, people uh, in sports train. Uh, Christians want to know why they're pursuing Christ so hard, wholeheartedly. Even Peter asked, what about us, Lord? We've left everything. What, what's in it for us? Well, look at, look at the last phrase of verse 23, James 2. James chapter 2, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. How's that for a reward? A friend of God. Amazing. Because of God's grace and mercy, Abraham was a personal friend. And amazingly, God promised Abraham that through him, God would bless all peoples with the same kind of reward. That was the promise to Abraham. Through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the families of the world with this friendship with God. Look at Genesis 12:3. This is the beginning of Abraham's relationship with God. He said, In you, God said, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How, how so? How are you and I, we're included in all the families of the earth, how are you and I going to experience the blessing that Abraham heard 5,000 years ago? Well, here's a one-word answer, and it's tough to remember, so pay attention. Jesus, that's why you and I can participate in the blessing of Abraham. Jesus who was in the line of Abraham. Jesus, who was a descendant of Abraham. Jesus, who was the promise to Abraham. Through faith in Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, we, you and I, and whoever else believes in him can become friends with God. That's the reward. Eternal friendship with God. In our passage this morning, James 2, 20-26, there is an underlying but overwhelming emphasis. And this emphasis is this, faith in Jesus Christ. 
This is the unspoken but obvious focus of faith in the book of James. James's tests of faith aren't tests of generic faith. These are tests of faith in Jesus Christ. Genuine faith is faith in a person, not faith in faith, not faith in self, but faith in Christ. This is why James chose to use the story of Isaac and his sacrifice to confirm Abraham's faith. Remember that it's through Abraham that all the nations, you and I, will be blessed. Also remember that Isaac was Abraham's promised son through whom this blessing would pass. Now, let's keep in mind, if you aren't aware of this, Isaac is one of the Old Testament's greatest pictures of Jesus Christ. Isaac, the son of Abraham, Isaac, the promised son, is one of the greatest pictures, Old Testament pictures of Jesus Christ. Let me prove this to you. Did Jesus have a miraculous birth? Yeah, virgin birth is kind of miraculous. So did Isaac have a miraculous birth. As much as God had to be involved in the birth of Jesus, God had to be involved in the birth of Isaac. The Bible tells us that Abraham and Sarah were dead reproductively. They couldn't produce offspring. Abraham was over 100, Sarah over 90. Nothing else needs to be said. God had to intervene in both Jesus and Isaac's birth. Was Jesus the promised son? We've sung about it this morning. Listen, Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus is that one, God with us. Emmanuel is the promised son of the virgin. Jesus is the promised son. How about Isaac? Was he promised? Oh, yeah. Isaac had been promised to Abraham and Sarah for decades before he was born. And so both Jesus and Isaac were promised sons. And by the way, the promise of Christ first came to whom? Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15. He wasn't first promised to Abraham. He was promised to the first sinners, Adam and Eve. But they were both promised sons. Did Jesus suffer a sacrificial death? Of course. So did Isaac, up to the point of actually dying. Isaac was bound, laid on an altar, knife put to the throat. The author of Hebrews said that he figuratively died. Did Jesus have to carry the, his instrument of death up Calvary? Yeah, he carried his cross up Calvary's mount. Do you remember that? How about Isaac? Did he have to carry any wood up Mount Moriah? Yeah, he carried up his own instrument of death. The fire that would be used in his own burnt offering. And not only that, not only did Isaac carry the wood on his back for the fire, but he and his father Abraham traveled for three days to this remote place called Mount Moriah, which happened to be the same mountain on which Jesus was crucified 2,000 years later. Amazing coincidence. No. 
That wasn't a coincidence. Friends, listen. It was on that hill that Abraham called God Jehovah Jireh. You heard that name before? Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Genesis 22, 14. First time we read that name for God, Jehovah Jireh, and Abraham used it. Now, there's good reason for Abraham to use that name for God, right? Did God provide a substitute for Isaac? Certainly. He found the ram in the bush. But notice the grammar. It's not God has provided. It's future tense. God will provide. And if you read Genesis 22, 19, it goes, it's better than that. On this mount, God will provide. Lo and behold, 2,000 later, 2,000 years later, Jesus is carrying his own cross up that same mountain on which he died as a sacrificial death for you and me. What an amazing story. Abraham was a friend of God. You and I can become the same friend as Abraham, receive the same blessing of divine friendship if we'll but believe in the promised son. Jesus said in John 15, 14, that we can be his friend if we simply obey and trust him. Put our hope in Christ. Will you do that? Have you done that? If so, you are a friend of God. A friend. Jesus says, I call you friends. Friends. So as we think about examining the authenticity of our faith on this Christmas Sunday, does your life reflect the reality that you are a friend of God as Abraham was? Have you embraced Jesus, God's promised son, as Abraham embraced the promise of this son that was to come? Friends, this is the critical moment. This is when you must decide whether or not to follow Christ, to embrace the offer of forgiveness in the promised son, Jesus Christ. This is what Christmas is about. This is the most significant part of Abraham and Rahab's story. They're connected to our Savior. They give us hope. They represent the spectrum of everyone that God cares about. From the best of the best to the worst of the worst. And all of us in between. God says, come and I'll give you rest. God says, come and I'll forgive your sins and befriend you. What an amazing opportunity. Friend, what a story. Here in James chapter 2, the Christmas story. Who would have thought? You know, uh, in case you get uh, tempted to be too impressed with my ability to pick Christmas out of James 2, uh, let me just tell you this little secret here. This is a theological secret. The Christmas story is on every page in the scripture. <laughs> and you have to be blind not to see it. <laughs> so this is no great feat of theological prowess. This is, this is, this is simple observation. <laughs> uh, what a wonderful Savior we have. Let's pray.
Lord, we do uh, rejoice in our Savior. We have nothing but joy and thanksgiving and gratitude in our hearts for this wonderful gift, the promised son who came through the offspring of Abraham all the way down to us, that we may know him, that we may have our sins forgiven by him, that he may be our substitute to stand before God, the judge of all the earth, the living and the dead, that he might be for us, our friend, our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, do your work of grace in each of our lives as necessary to the degree that each of us need. To those who don't know you, that you would convert their souls this moment. To those of us who know you but are discouraged, that you would build us up in Christ through faith in him and through the through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. To those of us who are strong and rejoicing in our salvation, God, I pray that you administer to us and, and help us to see the world around us with your eyes this Christmas season. God, what a blessing to be part of your family, to be a friend of God. Bless us now as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen.